Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us uh, Dilip Hero. Mr. Hero is a well-known journalist and author uh, based in London, and today we are speaking about his newest book, Cold War in the Islamic World, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the struggle for supremacy. Welcome, Mr. Hero. Thank uh, you, Mr. Hero. What was what is the thesis of your book? I think basically what I'm talking about, you know, is there is a competition between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran to show that they are the leaders of the Islamic world. You know, I mean, you can't have two leaders. You know, as you know. In, in, a, in a forest, there can only be one lion. If there are two lions, they will fight each other. So this competition got going once there was Islamic revolution in Iran, and it became Islamic Republic. So basically, we are talking about conflict between a monarchy, which is an authoritarian monarchy, as in Saudi Arabia, and Islamic Republic, as in Iran. So that's a basic conflict. You commenced the book with a description of what you refer to as a, quote, soft coup, unquote, uh, which saw um, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman leapfrog over his cousin to become the heir apparent uh, to the Saudi throne. Why did you commence the book in that fashion? I think basically, as you know, in any book or anything, like, a, I'm sorry, it's a good uh, newspaper article, you have to open your thing with a, a strong opening, you know, to engage the reader. Now, the thing about Saudi Arabia is that, you know, it didn't make much uh, news. Of course, some kings died, some, uh, you know, maybe uh, they raised the price of oil. But in the three years when uh, Salman bin Abdulaziz became uh, the ruler in January 2015. In three years, he has made more headlines, international headlines, than the kingdom of the past 30 years because he has made so many changes so quickly. And you see that everything is very hierarchical you know, in the uh, kingdom, you know, and uh, seniority of age and so on and so forth. But in this case, uh, Salman change the rules so fast, so quickly, that, you know, you, you were left in a dizzying, your head was dizzying, going, you know, so within three years, what he did, first thing was that the earlier crown prince, which had been fixed before, uh, that's Ben Nayef, that's Mohammed Ben Nayef, uh, he, was, he was 56 years old, he was kicked out, and uh, Salman promoted his son, who was only 31 at that time, to become the crown prince. So I think that really is a very big news. You know, it's like earthquake. Uh, you know, when uh, all the furniture or buildings are rearranged, that's what happened. Not only that, he kicked out, uh, elbowed out uh, the previous crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, MBN, but when that former conference went back to his palace in Jeddah, all his previous guards were changed completely, and his bank accounts were frozen. So it wasn't simply moving one and putting somebody else, but they really completely changed the whole thing, and that really such a big news that I had to put it up front of course, you know, engage the, you know, it's quite honestly, if we all know that, uh, you know, 
this uh, it's a throne, you know, the, the, the TV series, you know, uh, <clears throat> constant changes happening. That's why I have started the book in that fashion. Uh, can you describe the origins of the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran? I think rivalry is essentially between you know, being a republic. So you have, of course, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran is by no means a liberal democracy. But the fact is that every four years, they have a parliamentary election, they have a presidential election, and, you know, and presidents have changed. You know, there are three or four different presidents have come. Some of them moderate, other radical hardline. So the fact that the last... Uh, Hassan Rouhani, who, you know, the, the one who is now there and he was there before, nobody expected him to win 57% of the vote in the first run, and he got that. So that means democracy. In democracy, if you don't know who's going to win, that is the final test of democracy. Now, in terms of uh, what happens in Saudi Arabia, of course, I explained this before. There's no such a, a, a thing like uh, who will be next or what will be next is decided by one person. And, you know, and that is it. There's no nothing else that you can do. Now, if you are looking at something, shall I say, more uh, interesting or more newsy, now, at one point, November 19, <coughs> Seven, seventeen. Uh, King Salman overnight wrote a decree. He appointed anti-corruption uh, committee. He appointed his son as a chair of that. Within 24 hours, up to 300 people arrested and put in jail. You know, it was jail happened to be a very uh, five-star hotel. So I'm trying to show the difference between the governance of uh, Iran and the governance of Saudi Arabia. You take a uh, what what we call essentialist view of this uh, rivalry or competition. And by essentialist, I'll give you a description. At my um, club about uh, two years ago, there was an Israeli speaker uh, who um, was not an academic, but he used to be in uh, Israeli intelligence. And his description of the rivalry between these two countries was that this was something going back to uh, the 7th century AD. Uh, so that's what I mean by essentialist. Uh, do you take an essentialist view of this uh, competition? No, but just to see what's happening, you know, again, as you know, <laughs> Ultimately, one has to look at the, the, what's called the baseline or the basics, the fundamentals. The point is that the Saudi regime has been put on the defensive because there's no parliament, there's no consultation with citizens, you know, what they should do or should not do. Something happens overnight. You see, there's no input of the citizens into the governance of a country. And that has put them on the uh, defensive. You see, and on the other side, of course, as I explained, everybody knows there have been so many elections since the revolution in 1979 in Iran. And even a sweeping leader is not just for life. Every eight years, he has to be confirmed by a popularly elected assembly of experts. So this is a, they are on the defensive, and they, meaning the Saudi royals, have found a way of diverting it by saying, what's in Iran is a Shia Iran, is a Shia Islam. We are Sunnis. Now, worldwide... Sunnis are 85% of the population, and the Shias or Shiites are about 15% of the population. So that is something they harp on. That means the Saudi regime takes out oh, they are uh, uh, Shias. They have nothing to do with us. We are Sunnis. And that's what they are trying to do. But ultimately, it is their own uh, defensive posture and you know and you know i mean even just something else quite interesting at some point uh, something called the shura council shura means advisory council 
Most setup in uh, Saudi Arabia, they had 60 members, then they went up to 120, they didn't even, uh, I mean, all of them nominated, all of them nominated. And then uh, King Abdullah appointed 30 uh, women, you know, and so the 150 members saw Shura Council, Advisory Council, you would think that uh, this young Crown uh, Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, he's talking about reform, 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 that you would hear something more about an advisory council. Because advisory council itself, by the stroke of the pen of the king, can be given more powers. But they have no powers. They simply, uh, you know, uh, meet sometime, and even whatever they say does not get into the local press and so on. So I think that is a basic point. Of course, uh, Bin Salman, or Mohammed bin Salman, can't be very much aware of what you may call the publications, PR. Women can't drive, so they're very big news in the Western world, so he says, okay, they can drive. This is it. But the key point is that in Saudi Arabia, adult women are treated as minors. They cannot uh, travel on their own, they cannot have a job, they have to get permission from the their guardian, who could be uh, even a younger brother, uh, has to be a male. So that is the key point. What's called a guardianship rule is the key point about keeping women as uh, semi, uh, as, as minors, you know, as third class citizens. That's the key point, and that's not being talked about. Uh, would it be accurate to say that uh, prior to the fall of the Shah of Iran in 1979, that this um, rivalry was, for all intents and purposes, non-existent or at the very least extremely muted. Now that's quite true. You see, what happened? Of course, you know, of course, <coughs> this was a proper revolution in uh, in Iran. And again, one has to say whether you like it or not, it was quite a uh, unique uh, phenomenon because it was a religious revolution. All revolutions before, starting within Mexico, the Bolshevik Revolution, the French Revolution, they were all secular revolutions. This was uh, Islamic Revolution. Now, why it happened? Because uh, the Shah, the Mohammed Raza Shah Pahlavi, he was the uh, ruler, but he was under the 1907 constitution. And in that constitution, it clearly says that the ruler of Iran will protect Shia Islam, etc., etc. But the Shah of Iran basically ran a secular uh, regime. And of course, he was very much on the side with uh, America. So, so he was on the side of America for his own reasons, because he was, he, uh, his country had uh, common borders with the Soviet Union. And so his friendship uh, was very much appreciated by Washington because it's next door to uh, the Soviet Union. And then on the other side, of course, you know, from night, February 1943, when U.S. President uh, Roosevelt, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, he, he wrote executive order in which he said the defense of Saudi Arabia is the defense of uh, United States. Since then, that basically, America has been a protector of Saudi Arabia, and every president since then has endorsed that statement made by uh, President uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you see. So in that sense, here's he, he basically, if one is looking for one-liner, here's one-liner. America, which is the protector of Saudi Arabia, is a great Satan of the Iranian regime. And that basically shows you the contradiction. There's a deep hostility between the two sides. Who would you say was the primary culprit in the uh, commencement of the Iran-Iraq War in 1980? Yeah, that's true. You see, again, uh, one has to look at certain things in you know, a larger uh, concept. Whenever there's a revolution, a genuine revolution, like in the Bolshevik Revolution uh, in the Soviet Union, then that revolution tries to spread it, and all the countries surrounding that uh, country where revolution has taken place, the rulers of the countries surrounding them 
they are very much afraid that revolution will spread. You know, because, you know, you can see what happened next door, and so the people will come up. And, of course, uh, in the case of, say, the uh, Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, uh, countries surrounding them were all monarchies and uh, aristocratic uh, regimes. So they were very much afraid. So what happens is that the revolutionary regime then tries to export its own model as a defensive means, you know, so that, you know, so that they don't get... Uh, crushed, you know, because after every revolution, attempt is made for counter-revolution. And if you are, you don't have looked very far, look at Arab Spring 2011, then the counter-revolution. Everything has gone back except in Tunisia. So that's basically what happened in Iran as well. See, so now Khomeini, who of course is a Shia leader, and he was expelled by the Shah in 1963, then he was uh, living in the uh, holy city of Najaf in Iraq, because that's a, a place of the Shia learning. And so when he became himself the founder of Islamic Republic, he encouraged the Shias, uh, Shiites in Iraq to rise up against Saddam Hussein. The very quick history of Iraq is that for a long time, Iraq used to be one way or the other, either with Ottoman Turks, who were, uh, who were Sunni, or with the uh, Safavids in the uh, Persian Empire, who were Shia. So Iraq being on the border, once on one side and the other side, in 1638, finally, what we know of Iraq was incorporated into the Turkish Empire, Ottoman Turkish Empire, and because they were Sunni, therefore Sunnis ran the, the country of Iraq from 1638. And so, but Shi- Shi- Shiites in uh, Iraq are 60%, 6-0. So, Khomeini uh, uh, tried to encourage uh, the, uh, the Shiites in uh, Iraq rise up against the secular regime of Saddam Hussein, who was Sunni. That failed. And of course, and there was a war between the two sides, and it went on for eight years. And very interesting to see, when that war was going on, very few Shia, uh, Shiite soldiers defected to the Iranian side. You're so powerful. Uh, propaganda machine by Saddam Hussein regime and the nationalists and the Arabs and uh, these uh, uh, Persians and, and so on that very few defected to the other side. So in that sense, Khomeini's attempt to overthrow the regime of Sunni Saddam Hussein failed and for eight years, after eight years, nothing changed. But now, of course, things changed after 2003 and we can talk about that. Uh, why did the, uh, continuing on the war for a second, why did the Iraqi forces perform so poorly at the beginning of the war? I think what happened was, you see, <coughs> actually, I, I was uh, in Iran after the revolution, not during the revolution, but you wouldn't believe, at the time of the revolution, before the revolution, Shah of Iran had 440,000 troops in his military. And when the revolution happened, in, even in Tehran, there was not a single soldier. See, all the soldiers, they either defected, they threw away the uh, uniforms and so on and so on. So basically the army was destroyed, you know, I mean, it disbanded. Then of course, the new regime tried to recruit people and so on and so forth. So in that period, from February 1979, until uh, September 1980, when the war happened in Iran, Iraq, Iran was in a very weak position. See, their army had disbanded because all their weapons were mostly from America, and they had batteries with America. America would not supply them with spare parts and so on and so forth. That's one. Secondly, those uh, generals who were with the Shah. Uh, who uh, then, you know, when Khomeini came to power, they actually went over to Baghdad in in, in Iraq, and they sided with uh, Saddam Hussein, and Saddam Hussein gave them their uh, radio station and so on and so forth, and they encouraged Saddam Hussein to say, Khomeini is very weak, 
if you just go this way, then people rise up and he'll be finished. And that was why he was encouraged by the uh, former uh, Iranian generals uh, for their own reason. Then, of course, uh, because Khomeini was attacking the regimes of the monarchs in the Gulf, uh, that monarchy is uh, un-Islamic, so they encouraged Saddam Hussein also to uh, attack uh, Iran. And, of course, he himself uh, was very much afraid that if the Shiites were majority, if they rise up against him, then his regime will be threatened. So they were, and of course, America also encouraged him. So all these things came together to encourage Saddam Hussein to invade uh, Iran in September 1980. But things did not turn out that way because when this uh, happened, then Iranians were very nationalist. Iran has a long history going back 6,000 years. And Iran, Iranian identity is very strong. And they mean even those who are secular Iranians who did not like Khomeini, who did not like Islamic regime, they signed up to fight as Iranians against the Iraqi invaders. And that's why the war went on for a long time. You know, and essentially, again, just a headline, the Unintended consequence of uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of uh, Iran was to help Khomeini consolidate the revolution. Unintended in- uh, consequence. That's what happened. Um, why did the current supreme leader in Iran succeed uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989? He was by no means the most senior cleric uh, who could have uh, done so? Now that's true. I see again when I was to say this that you know the uh, the Islamic uh, model of uh, <coughs> governance in Iran is very special. This is a Shiite uh, model, of course. And what they are doing, and again, I have to be very uh, brief and uh, in a broad line. You see, the Shias, uh, Shiites in Iran, they believe there were 12 imams. Imam means the supreme leader you know, in a long time before. And the last imam uh, disappeared. Actually, what happened was that he was a small baby. Floods came and his body could not be found. So the Shiites uh, in Iran, who were called trailer Shiites, they believe that this uh, disappeared imam will come back and we are fighting for him to come back and so on. So in the meantime, we have to have some other uh, leader. And so, for instance, uh, Khomeini, you know, he was a leader. He was a leader for life. But that is only for him. It was for life. But the constitution of uh, Iran, which uh, says that we have to have a supreme leader who has to be elected for every eight years by an assembly of experts. Experts meaning those who are experts in Islam. You know, you, know, you might say mullahs. You know, and they are directly elected. So every eight years they uh, elect, or you know, in the case of Ayatollah uh, you know, he is a sitting uh, supreme uh, uh, leader, so they confirm him to go on for eight years. But the eight-year thing is not for life, you see. So that is a very special way of doing certain things. One other thing that I must say, anybody who bothers to read the Constitution of the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, which you can get on online, you will see in the preface they say that we are going for, uh, in quote, democracy because in the Quran, you quote the Quran, in the Quran it says, consult them consult the believers in their affairs. So what we are doing is in the name of the Quran, not because of Greek democracy. We are not doing that. We are doing according to what the, uh, the, the word of uh, Allah, the Quran says, consult them, the believers, in their affairs. And that's where the Iranian government would point its finger at the Saudi regime and say, how are you consulting your uh, believers, are you consulting and how are you doing it? That's the key point. Why did the detente between Riyadh and Tehran in the mid to late 1990s come to nothing substantively? 
counter revolution in, in Iran. I'm sorry. So, yes, of course. Attempt, yeah. See, attempts were made to overthrow the regime. You see, that always happens. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a given. When you make a revolution, then those who are displaced from power, they may be a small minority, they may be a large minority, it doesn't matter. They will try to come back and they use all kinds of means to come back. And attempts, repeated attempts were made to overthrow the regime of uh, Khomeini, and uh, just give you one quick example. There, there was a, you know, soon after the revolution, they set up a party called Islamic Republican Party, and 74 member uh, leaders of that party were meeting in one place, and bomb went off. 74 leaders of the ruling party were dead with one explosion. So you know, and and uh, so you see. That means, you know, those who were against the regime, not only from outside in Iraq or something, inside the country itself, you know, there were forces uh, working against the regime. They tried to topple it for various means, and that did not work out, because partly because, you know, uh, the uh, regime, the new regime, uh, uh, you know, later on tried to have a good intelligence, you know, and uh, that's what happened. I mean, if you if if one wants to look at much further, the last attempt that was made to overthrow uh, the regime in uh, you know in so many regime in Iran, you know the American hostages were taken, and then attempt was made by the Carter administration to get them released, and the whole plan was made, and of course uh, the helicopters went in uh, to try and pick them up, and so on. Now. Now, for some reason, whatever happened, helicopter broke down. It's a long story. And so what the regime in Tehran found, that all, you know, the missiles in around Tehran to hit down any flying aircraft, enemy aircraft, or, uh, <clears throat> all of those missiles had gone. They were not there. So this, uh, they questioned the air Air Force uh, commander, their own air, some of the Air Force commander. What happened? He said, "Oh, I sent them off to the north because the uh, ethnic Kurds are having rebellion." And it turned out that he was part of the plan of the CIA Carter administration plan to make sure that there are no missiles around Tehran to shut, shut, shoot down the helicopter which was going to come and pick up the. Uh, American hostage diplomats were taken hostage. So I'm just giving you the basic uh, thing. It was so deep. Various attempts were made, and that was the last big attempt, and that failed. Uh, yes, but in the book you do say that in the from the mid 1990s up to around year 2001, uh, there was a uh, relaxation of tensions between uh, the two countries. Uh, or if you like, you refer to it as a detente. Why did nothing substantive or concrete come from that in terms of a more permanent relaxation of tensions? Sorry, I'm sorry. What's the name of the president? Uh, president who's No, no. I, I was saying that in the book you state that. Yeah, the last that the name the of the last president. Mid 1990s up to around two, year 2001, 2002. There was a relaxation of tensions, or if you like, a detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So, for example, in I believe 1997, 1998, there were trips made by Rassanjani, uh, uh, as well as later yeah, 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 President yeah, yeah. Uh, Khatami to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Why, yeah. why did that relaxation of tensions in those years not result in some, something more substantive in terms of a um, better relationship between the two countries? Yeah, yeah. I think, see, again, uh, Charles, the main thing is here, when I say Cold War between, uh, in the Islamic world, I think one should look at the parallel with Cold War between the United States and Soviet Union. See, that Cold War was going on, but even in that Cold War, uh, 
President Nixon and Bresner, a Soviet leader, they, you know, came to a certain agreement. You know, you remember they had a meeting in uh, California and, you know, and they signed this uh, ABM anti-ballistic missile treaty in 1972. Uh, 70, see, so it isn't that, you know, the door is completely closed. See, so in the same way, between uh, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saudi Arabia, there have been uh, moments, there have been years uh, when they had good relations. You know, because see, as long as Khomeini was there, Khomeini's word was law. You know, it was like a divine edict. So they couldn't go against him. Once he, when he died in '89, then things relaxed. You know, and so uh, Rafsanjani became president, and he uh, moderated uh, the early foreign policy, and also economy was uh, liberalized, and so on and so forth. So attempts were genuine attempts were made on the both sides, you know, that they should come together. But then the two things did not come together because, see, ultimately we have to go back to this that. If Saudi Arabia is saying America is our protector and and they say America is Britain, so when the relations, uh, you know, the, there was a thaw between Abdullah and in fact uh, there was the Islamic Conference Organization Summit in 1997 in uh, in uh, Tehran, you know, and that could not happen if the Saudis had not given the green signal that happened and the king of uh, he was then crown prince he went to, uh, to tehran they had meetings and they kissed each other's cheeks and so on and so forth so it just seemed to be fine and then at that point king abdullah said i mean count was abdullah uh, the leader of saudi arabia said we'll be glad to help uh, iran and america you know settle their differences and so on and so forth and again there Moves were made, you know, when uh, Clinton was president in a letter in the second administration, you know, moves were made to, you know, bring about some power in which, uh, is, you know, there was an interview with the CNN that uh, Iranian uh, uh, Christina Amanpour, uh, and so in which the U.S. Uh, Iranian president said, you know, taking hostage was a wrong thing, for, uh, should not have been done. And then on the other side, uh, Secretary Albright said, you know, uh, what uh, the overthrow, uh, with the CIA attempt to overthrow the general regime of Mossadegh in Iran was wrong. So they were making steps to come together. That was to the very end of Bill Clinton's uh, Presidency. Would it be accurate to say that the Saudi fear of so-called uh, Shia axis in the near Middle East really commenced with the fall of the Saddam Hussein regime uh, in 2003, a regime, the Ba'athist regime, in essence, being a, a Sunni regime? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will give my answer. You see, one of the, the basic one of the basic points that I make in my book is that yes, Iran's ex, uh, influence has extended to Iraq, to Syria, to Hezbollah in Lebanon, to Yemen with the Houthis. Now the main point is, except uh, for Syria, in all other cases, if Iran's influence has increased, it is because of the wrong or shall I say misguided policies of the USA and Israel. You know, now. Take the invasion of uh, Iraq by the USA under President Bush. Now, see, once Saddam Hussein was relieved, uh, relieved, you know, uh, thrown away, uh, thrown out, and the power of the Sunnis was gone, and then one person, one vote was installed properly. Anybody could see that when that happens. The Shiites, who are 60% of the population, they will get into the driving seat by the ballot. Anybody could have seen that. Now, if that had happened, and if and since uh, majority Shiites are in power since 2003, and they are Shiite, and many of their leaders took refuge in Iran during the days of Saddam Hussein, so naturally they will be friendly with Iran. That is. This, you know, is taken for granted. So that's 
the thing in, in uh, Iraq. Then we come to uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah. I, I leave out Syria for the time being. Then you take uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, there was no Hezbollah before 1982. In 1978, Israel attacked southern Lebanon and occupied it, and they were in occupation until 2000, despite the UN Security Council resolution to the contrary. And it was after that that the Iranian ambassador in Damascus in uh, Syria, he helped few different Shia groups to come together and form Hezbollah. Hezbollah, by the way, means party of God. And so that Hezbollah came into existence in 1982. So one can very logically argue Hezbollah is a creation of mistakes or wrong states or aggression by Israel, whatever you want to say, they were not there before, that's one. Then we come to uh, Yemen. In Yemen, one has to guess basics. Among the Shiites, there are three different subsects within Shiites, within Shias. Those who believe in 12 Imams, which is in uh, Iran, in Iraq, in Lebanon, those who believe in the five Imams, they are called Zaidi uh, Shias, they are in Yemen. Then there are those who believe in seven, uh, they are called Ismailis, a different ball game. So because the five believers in Zaidi Shias who are in Yemen, they had no historical contact with the Turtle Shias. There was no link between them before. See, because they, and in fact, if you uh, look at the Islamic Republic's uh, constitution, it says Article 812. Uh, you know, our, our official uh, faith is uh, Shias, uh, Shias, but we also respect all the four schools of Sunni Islam, all the names are given, plus Zaidi Shias. So Zaidi Shias are separated out from them. Now, once Saudi Arabia got militarily involved in what was essentially a civil war in Yemen, then Iranians came to help uh, the Houthis. And Houthis are Zaidi Shias, and Houthi is the name of the leader. So they are Z-A-I-D-I, Zaidi Shias, and so they came to help them, and they have been helping them since then. So it isn't that uh, uh, Zaidi Shia Houthis were built up by uh, Iran to upset uh, Saudi, it's the other way around. And uh, it was on the 25th of March, uh, 2003 uh, years ago, uh, you know, that four years ago, 2015, that uh, uh, Salman, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who was at that time defense minister, he got involved, he attacked uh, the Houthis in a very big way, and his idea was, uh, you know, the biggest strike, you know, like just uh, what you call awe, awe and shock. And so the Houthis who were in control of the capital city of Sana, they would run away. Uh, four years have gone by, they have not run away. So again, that is the main point. In every case, it is the mistakes uh, taken by the Saudis or by the USA or by Israel. Then I come to Syria. Syria is a different ball game. See, Syria, of course, uh, again in Syria, the uh, majority population is Sunni, 70%, but the rulers are Alawi, who are part of the Shia Islam. And that is the minority ruling the majority. Okay? Now, when the Islamic revolution happened, uh, the father of the present, uh, president, Bashar, his father, Hafiz al-Assad, he was the president, and he liked what happened in Iran, because he was very friendly with the Soviet Union, he was very left-wing, and he was, of course, uh, Alawi, high-friend Shiite, so he very much uh, liked uh, the regime in Tehran. He, his country, Syria, was the first country to recognize Khomeini's regime, Arab, first Arab country recognizing. Since then, relations have been very good. During Iran-Iraq war, uh, Syria under Hafez Assad helped Iran in a big way because they had very good intelligence on Saddam's Iraq. 
So they, their relationship with, during Iran Iraq eight year war became very strong. And since then, Syria and Iran have signed mutual defense uh, treaties and so on and so forth. And one of the treaties specifically said, we will help each other against foreign aggression and against internal uh, disturbances, uh, internal uh, challenge to the regime. It, it, there are clear treaties signed in that fashion. So if the Iranians are actually in Syria, they are according to those treaties. They have their soldiers, they are advising uh, uh, Assad, they have uh, some of their uh, uh, troops fighting there, they have volunteers, and so on and so forth. So all of this, in a way, is one is being very legalistic and illegally done, you see? So my basic point is, if, sorry, if Iran has extended its uh, uh, influence in the region because of mistakes taken by USA, Saudi Arabia, Israel. And finally, of course, we look at Qatar. Qatar is a Sunni country. Qatar, the rulers actually are, the, they belong to the same Wahhabi sect as the Saudis. But we know what happened. You know, it's just a very aggressive account. He, you know, put 13 conditions for the ruler of Qatar to immediately concede all those things within about two months. Otherwise, we will cut you, cut off our relations with you. And that's what happened. Now, because of that, actually, Qatar is closer to Iran than before. So I'm saying this is the basic thesis of my book. Uh, why uh, was uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman so intent upon intervening militarily in Yemen? Was it an attempt at uh, winning internal prestige in Saudi Arabia by uh, winning what he erroneously thought would be a quick and easy victory? No, that's true. I think you know, Yemen, uh, to look at Yemen again, you know, basically the Yemen was affected by the Arab Spring. You know, and the ruler there, Saleh, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, he had been in power since 1978. So because of the uh, you know, Arab Spring came there, so he had to step down. And, and, there, and then after him, uh, his vice president, deputy president, he was elected or selected to become president. And so he, that is his uh, uh, successor, <clears throat> Uh, did not have full control of the army, you know. Is, uh, so that, uh, and he, he was not in such a strong position as Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had controlled the economy, he controlled the army, and so on. And of course, you see, it's a tribal situation, and what you do if you are in power, you play one tribe against the other, you give some money or infrastructure projects some and not to others and you know and that way you uh, you know manage to stay in power and uh, there's very uh, a strong image of uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh he said ruling uh, Yemen is like dancing on the heads of snakes <laughs> so that he managed to do that and once his position was uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, he was removed from power, but he still was around. He still had his uh, supporters within uh, Yemen. And so his uh, follower, uh, he did not have the kind of support. And in all this, uh, what you may call uh, chaos, the Zaidi Shias, who are uh, Houthis, who are in the northwest of Yemen, you know, mountainous uh, uh, region, they used to have rebellions uh, periodically against the city. Wants to come to the capital and take over the capital, and that was the main key point. You know, and that could not be allowed. Uh, by the Saudi regime to have the Shia uh, Houthis to be in charge of the uh, capital. And of course, you know, the successor to Ali Abdul Saleh, he was actually allowed to escape uh, so that they did not get in trouble. And he escaped, he went, uh, uh, he fled to Saudi Arabia. And so they said, oh, he is the proper ruler. And so we are going to intervene on his behalf. And uh, interestingly, is this. Uh, uh, his name is uh, 
<laughs> he arrived on the 25th of March in, uh, in Riyadh, and next day the bombing started. So all of this really was done in a way that, you know, uh, that Saudi Arabia got involved without proper thinking, and uh, the uh, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman said, it will be all over in six months. No, it's four years have gone by. Uh, would uh, how it, would it be correct to um, say that uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, so far um, has proven himself to be, diplomatically speaking, maladroit and have a rather negative, unsuccessful track record? So he, sorry, sorry, the, bin Salman having negative or what? Sorry, I'm sorry. A track record in terms of he's been primarily no, unsuccessful. Yeah, yeah, yes, in his various yeah, yeah. in policies, at least in terms of diplomacy yeah. and foreign yeah. relations. No, absolutely. I think if you just look at it, you know, uh, closely, and of course I can very quickly give it background. You know, he is uh, the eldest son of the six children born to King Salman by his last wife, who was twenty-two years younger than him. He's the, uh, the eldest, you know, and he was born in, you know, at the time. When you know the uh, the, the uh, King uh, Abdullah, he started to not send many uh, princes to America for the education, and therefore, uh, Mohammed bin Salman did not go to America for education. He he graduated from the university in Saudi Arabia, so his English was not very really good. But even that university had a special section for foreign languages, and he picked up some English language there. So he was not fully informed about the outside world. You know, his his view was very limited. You see, you know, and I'm not and and unlike his younger brother who uh, who went to Oxford and so on and so forth. So therefore, you know, his, you know, his uh, brother, elder brother, he went to Oxford, and so his viewpoint was very small, uh, limited. You know, of course, he was the favorite son of uh, King Salman for the reason because I explained his uh, lost young wife, the eldest son, they really groomed him up and so he gave him much power and uh, he uh, was actually his, his uh, uh, degree is in, in, is in law. So he uh, actually, when he became the defense minister, he became this as soon as Salman became the king because Salman was defense minister before. And immediately what he did, interestingly, he beefed up the legal department in the defense uh, ministry. Because before that, the uh, prince who was uh, Sultan running it, he was very corrupt. He was getting his uh, commissions and so forth. So he, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, beefed up the... Uh, legal side to make sure that our few, uh, look at old contracts and the new contracts should be properly done. And so he showed himself to be very aware and very uh, uh, dedicated. That really impressed his father. So he did it. So basically what he did, uh, what he started to do, there was no opposition to him. There was no other person to disagree with him, or he could not have a debate with anybody, and he himself, because he appointed a couple of advisors who had Harvard education, and he, meaning members, uh, MBS, members of Salman, immediately uh, tried to build up a public relations thing, and the first uh, mag Western magazine he invited to interview him was The Economist. The economist has a high reputation. Two thirds of the economist copies are sold in USA, and you know, and then uh, so and Bloomberg's uh, uh, magazine they put him on the front page, and so that way he gave himself a good exposure to the Western world, and that made him feel that he could do anything. Now that is not the same as doing something in the region, because in the region there are certain uh, forces which are very strong, and one thing that you have to learn, 
which is the basic thing about anything, before you engage with uh, somebody who is your uh, enemy or who is hostile to you, you must work out the maximum force that the enemy will bring up to fight you. That he never did. He has never done that. He said, ah, Qatar, Qatar is a little thumb uh, attached to the great uh, kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So if I say, do this, they have to do it. Boom. No, he doesn't understand. <laughs> he doesn't understand that Qatar and Iran are sharing the world's largest gas field you know, in, 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 the, in the person Gulf. You know, and they cannot separate themselves because they are, you know, like uh, Siamese twins. So how can you tell them, cut off relations with Iran? It's not good. So he is, doesn't go ahead and think what next, you know, and he just, you know, pushes hard, you know, and he thinks it will be done as if he's running the show at home. See, so he made a mistake. He made a mistake there. Then he went on about the Lebanon because the Lebanese... Uh, uh, Prime Minister, you know, uh, you know, he he has a lot of contracts in uh, in Saudi Arabia, so he thought that he could handle them. He asked him to come and see him, and then he put him under house arrest. So, see, so he thought, you know, in your government, there are two ministers out of thirty who are his villa. I want you to get rid of them. So the the Prime Minister said, wait a minute, you know, it's not simply his villa, two ministers. You see, his villa's arm forces are as big as the proper army of Lebanon. So how do you expect me to just get rid of the only two ministers? He said, no, if you don't do it, he, he, he put him on a house arrest. So, so what I mean is that the, the basic thing that uh, you have to understand, you know, going into uh, Yemen, any the French correspondent of any newspaper could tell him or tell me or tell you, listen, if you are going to do a lot of bombing of your country, a foreign country or any country, then you must follow up the bombing with boots on the ground. Simple bombing is not enough. He never did that. He ruled out, I will not send uh, Saudi soldiers, uh, uh, troops on the ground. He said, that's, no, I'll do the bombing and they will, uh, so Houthis will leave uh, Sana. So the basic thing, I mean, how can you be a defense minister of a country and uh, basically the prime minister, the de facto ruler, go into a war not knowing the basics of war, not knowing the main thing you go into war, you must know your exit. What is your exit point? When do you want to get out? He doesn't have that. He just went in, boom, we're going to do this bombing and this. So I'm afraid all of these things he has done is totally wrong. They have been counterproductive, and anybody can see that if you were to sit down and give him, you know, mark him, you will give him minus E. Not minus D, you give minus E. That's all it is. Is there any possibility of another soft coup uh, displacing or ousting him from his current uh, position? I think theoretically, King Salman can, you know, he has changed conferences before he could do the same with him. But that's simply not possible. He's, he meaning, remember, bin Salman is in everything. He is in charge of running oil. He is in charge of, uh, you know, making sure that cinema is open. And, you know, he, he is in every foreign policy, home policy, even getting rid of a very... Uh, the annoying uh, journalist uh, Khashoggi, who was in America to get him killed. All he's in so many things that it's very difficult to see that Salman can actually say, "Okay, you're out. Somebody else is in." That is simply not possible. Now there have been some rumors that an attempt was made uh, at the place where he lives. You know, by what do they call dissidents? You know, armed attempt was made to attack the place where he lives, and that attempt was failed. You know, because intelligence is very good. The other thing is that you know there could be an accident. You know, say he he goes to the front and the Yemeni war to show how brave he is, and he may get blown up in a helicopter or whatever. That could happen. Or there could be assassination because there was one assassination in 1975 
of you know of uh, King Faisal by one of his nephews. So that could happen. But I think his you know his intelligence is uh, very very strong. You know, and he never moves along without at least thirty. Uh, security unit moving with him, say when he came to America, the same thing. So I think that doesn't seem likely. The only thing is there may be some kind of uh, you know accident, to, uh, proper accident. Uh, otherwise, you know, and the main reason Western countries are not really getting you know harsh with him or uh, is, is uh, sidelining him because he knows that he will be in power for the next. 50 years, five zero years. He's only 34 now, you know, and seeing what happened before, he'll be there for a long time. Saudi Arabia is a very important part of the world economy, you know, and the whole strategic, uh, world strategic uh, makeup. So they can't afford to sideline him. Do Iranians view um, their foreign policy in the region in the same uh, sectarian way that? Uh, Riyadh does. I'm sorry. What I'm saying. I thought uh, do, does um, Iran, do Iranians view their regional policy in the same sectarian terms that uh, Saudi Arabia does? Yeah, I think you see the the way things stand now. See, both sides are in a way locked in a particular position, and if if one simply forgetting about what is once. Uh, bias and viewpoints, if you look at some of the statements that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been making, he has called Iranian Supreme Leader uh, Ali Khamenei the new Hitler. And uh, then when he was in America, one of the interviews, he said, you know, Hitler only wanted to uh, capture Europe. Uh, Ali Khamenei, he wanted to capture the world. I mean, this is a... This is a how can I say, absolutely silly statement. How can a Shia country, where Shias are themselves 15% of the Muslim population, how can leader of that country imagine ruling the world? So, you know, making these uh, statements, and of course, I have to say, on the other side, uh, the Supreme Leader of Iran has not engaged with him. He does not you know, make a counter statement. He leaves it to some uh, somebody else if they have to, uh, you know, uh, issue a rejoinder or something. So I think this is uh, so. Given this kind of a state of affairs, I can't see that there will be some kind of a thaw or a compromise. You know, they, they, uh, that's one thing. Second thing we want to remember: uh, see, here is a contradiction. Uh, ben Salman, that is Mohammed Ben Salman, he has. Huge plans uh, to invest. You know, he's going to create a, a special uh, a, a super city, uh, which will be built with the help of 500 billion uh, investment, and uh, this will be run all by uh, artificial intelligence, and there will be zero uh, energy used by the fossil fuels, and so on. This will require 500 billion. Uh, in, in now, his plan was to privatize the world's largest corporation, oil corporation, Saudi Aramco, and that will bring in money, uh, hopefully 2,000 billion, and some of the money will go to build this particular uh, city, and there are many other big projects. Now, how can you pursue that scenario of making all these big things and then get into a fight with Iran. The moment there is actual uh, fighting between the two sides, all the people who uh, have their money, they will, uh, in Saudi Arabia, they will move the money out. Nobody's going to invest. So there's a basic contradiction. You know, this Mohammed bin Salman doesn't know which way uh, to turn properly. Okay, you want to go for a big way, make up the economy, then concentrate on that. Don't get into a fight with Iran. Just let them do what they want to do. But he also wants to put down Iran, the Shia, etc., etc. So I think that way we have a major problem on hand with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So do you envision, say, five or ten years uh, in the future that the rivalry will uh, ameliorate somewhat? 
No, I'm sorry, John. I'm, tomorrow I thought because we were talking about you know future. I thought this might be the last question. I'm sorry, so I didn't uh, hear your last question. I thought if you tell me the last but one question, okay. Uh, in in essence, do you um, believe that the rivalry between the two countries will diminish, say, in between five or ten years from now? No, I think they see. The, the relations between, you see, there, there's so much talk. Of course, uh, we all know the policy of USA. You know, the USA policy, of course, uh, uh, <clears throat> Trump, uh, President Trump is completely allied with, uh, uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia, with uh, <clears throat> Ben Salman, Mohammed Ben Salman, and of course, he ignores the, the killing of Khashoggi, and, you know, and of course, even they are trying to demeaning. Uh, <clears throat> some companies in America are trying to bid for setting up uh, nuclear, uh, civilian nuclear power uh, plants in Saudi Arabia and so on. You know, so uh, so you know, USA is very much, or uh, the Trump is very much allied with the Saudi Arabia, and because for them again, the demon is Iran. You know, and so they are trying to get Iran, but uh, once again, they are pushing Iran, but they are, unfortunately, they are not uh, working out the full strength of Iran. You know, Iran can draw not only within their own country, but all other countries around, which as I said, you know, Syria, Iraq, etc., etc. You know, and Iraq, for example, is very much with Iran. It's not going to go away. You know, already the economies are... Uh, very closely allied, you know, and I explained about Syria, and Syria, of course, is in deep economic trouble, so nobody, uh, Iran doesn't have the money to reconstruct uh, Syria, so that is not the major problem, but the key point, actually, so much of the, what shall I say, the initiative lies with Mohammed bin Salman, whether he's going to pursue the economic dreams that he has about his country, or whether he's going to uh, have very bad relations with uh, Iran, which will, you know, uh, make things much worse. And already there is a, uh, what you may call triangular relationship between Qatar, Iran, and Turkey. Turkey is helping uh, Qatar, because, you know, and as you know, it was in Istanbul that Khashoggi was killed, and it was uh, uh, President Erdogan who had been very much trying to. Uh, you know, have the world community interest into the killing of Khashoggi. So I think that Turkey is also, in a way, allied against Saudi Arabia. Not openly, but, you know, if push comes to show, they will go with Iran. And again, Iran and uh, Turkey and uh, Russia are involved in Syria. So I think that, you know, ultimately it all comes down to if uh, some wise uh, policies are drilled through the uh, brain of uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, then things could improve. Otherwise, things would not improve. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? No, what, sorry? If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book after having read it, what would it be? No, I think they they would like to see. I mean, if you let, let me simply, I'm sorry. Let's say that you know I am being very positive uh, and uh, say um, let's say that I have a power in Iran. If I would advise King uh, Salman, King Salman, King Salman, then please, you already have advisory council in your uh, country. We did not say you set it up. Start to give the advisory come, uh, council more uh, power, uh, issue a decree to say, yes, it was a committee can call the ministers, question them, they can, uh, and then ask them to have some say in making the budget. They should have some control over the budget. You're making them say, okay, we are advisory committee. You know, the uh, Saudi Aramco, uh, the biggest oil company in the world, does not publish annual yes. financial accounts. Yes. It's not publishing. So they can say, okay, here's the advisory committee, it should be given access to the uh, annual uh, financial statement of this uh, 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 Saudi Aramco. So slowly, 
that advisory committee can be built up. See, as it is now, at the municipal level, they have elections, you know, and the elections happen intermittently in Saudi Arabia, in big cities, and their powers are to make sure that your uh, wastage is cleared and the city uh, street lights are on, and that's about all their power is. So you can give more power to the municipalities, you can give more power to the advisory, and then what you can say in the advisory committee itself, when there are 150 members, one third, uh, one half, will be elected directly, and in, in which uh, men and women will have right to vote. So in slowly you can build up the advisory uh, council into a properly elected as, assembly, legislative assembly. That can be done. So, but I don't think, you know, <laughs> this is all what I say is a fancy idea. It's not going to happen. I would like to thank you very much, Mr. Hero, for being so kind yeah. as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Hero. Yes, very nice to talk to you at length. Thank you very much.